we are starting in the book it is part three the two genealogies in Matthew and Luke it is on page three now let me just mention uh, also with respect to the outline uh, the outlines that you're getting do not have the same titles that you'll find in the book because the book's titles are designed to survey the life of Yeshua from a geographical point of view. So you'll read of the later Judean ministry, the early Galilean ministry, etc. But our outline focuses on the life of the Messiah as the presentation of Israel's king. So our outline is a little different. So paragraphs 3, in your outline I'm looking now, paragraphs 3 through paragraphs 27. And just so that we have an idea of what we're looking at, paragraph 3 on page 3 is indicated next to the word apparently Joseph's genealogy in Matthew and Mary's in Luke so if you can just see that you see that strange little squiggly uh, symbol is the symbol for paragraph and it's right next to the three now if you turn to page 20 uh, page 22 You'll see in the bottom left it says John's identification of Yeshua as the Messiah is paragraph 27. So our outline is telling us that the introduction of the king is going to follow paragraphs 3 through 27 which in the book covers pages 3 through 22. Does that make sense to everyone? Everybody following this? Okay. How many knows? You're right there. Perfect. You know. So. Some more light. Uh, torches. We, there we go. Okay. So, uh, just one more time for the nose. On page three, it says at the top, part three. Everybody see that? Nose, see that? Nose, see that. Okay. And then you see the two genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Right? Then you see the number three. And the number three has a strange squiggly type symbol. That's the paragraph symbol. So that's paragraph three. Now if you turn to page 22, bottom left, you'll see it says John's identification of Yeshua as the Messiah. Everybody see that? And next to it, it has 27 with the unique symbol that's paragraph 27 so essentially pages 3 through that point in 22 is going to cover in our outline what is titled the introduction of the king okay now we covered last time paragraphs 1 and 2 paragraphs 1 and 2 covered pages 1 and 2 and we looked at Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 and in John's gospel chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 and everyone sees that, right? Okay, so tonight we're going to start with paragraph 3. And I never know how far we're going to get. Um, so it's always a little tricky to anticipate. But uh, we're going to start in 3, see how far we get, and uh, get an idea of what's transpiring here. So on the outline it says the arrival of the king. That's on your, your outline, right underneath. Um, the introduction of the king it says A, the arrival of the king paragraphs 3 through 19 and that's what that slide is indicating we're at in the outline 
Everybody good? Now the next slide is going to go down and it says number one, I didn't put the one, but number one, the genealogy of the king covering paragraph three. So that's where we're at. Now when we look at the genealogy of the king as recorded in Matthew and Luke, we find that only Matthew and only Luke give us number one, birth narratives, that is stories regarding the events of the birth of the king. And they are also the only writers that give us something of the genealogy of the Messiah as well. Now, Matthew's genealogy and Matthew's birth narratives present, are presented to us from Joseph's perspective. And so we see what is transpiring from his vantage point. So for example, Joseph is taking the active role. So it's Joseph that receives the dreams. It is Joseph to whom the angels appear. It is Miriam who, or Mary, who is um, presenting or is acting in the passive role. So we don't really get a whole lot of information about what is going on with Miriam or Mary. But we do get a lot of information of what's happening from Joseph's perspective, what he's thinking, what he's planning, what he intends to do, what he fears. When we come when we come to um, Matthew's and uh, Luke's genealogy, we're going to look in a moment, we want to raise the question first of all is why is it that the gospel writers present us with two genealogies? Why do we need any genealogies at all? On the one hand, Matthew is writing from Joseph's perspective, remember, and what he's going to demonstrate is that Yeshua is connected to the royal line. And so when we say the royal line, what we mean to say is he is connected to, related to David's line. Because David is the premier king of Israel. He's not the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel is, of course, Saul. And Saul forfeits his kingship because of his rebelliousness against God. As a result, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint another one whom the Lord would point out to Samuel to be king. Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse. And he, is, he asks Jesse to have his sons presented to him because the Lord said one of his sons will serve as king. And it's a very interesting passage because the first thing that Jesse does is to present his oldest to Samuel. And of course that's just like the patriarchs. Abraham expects Ishmael to be the inheritor of God's promise. Isaac expects Esau to be the inheritor of God's promise, etc. When we get to Jesse, he expects the firstborn. And Samuel figures it is the firstborn. And God tells Samuel, no, that's not the one to anoint. And he goes down the line through six or seven sons. And to each of them, God tells Samuel, neither one of these is to be anointed as king. And then Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Samuel and uh, Jesse, it's almost like he scratches his head. No, those are all my sons. I don't know who you... T oh, wait a minute. There's one more. I forgot him. He's off in the, in the uh, you know, meadows with the sheep. But it can't possibly be him. And Samuel says, go get him. And he brings him. And there's the next king of Israel. 
And he's not just the next king of Israel, but he's the premier king of Israel. And to him, he will be promised a dynasty forever. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. So Matthew's genealogy is going to connect Yeshua's coming into our world with respect to the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic line. But for a unique reason. Not to show us that because he's connected to the Davidic line does he deserve to be king, but precisely because he's related to the Davidic line, he cannot be king. And so that's kind of a strange twist on it because I know we've always heard in our churches, oh, the reason why that Yeshua is to be Israel's king is because he's the promised son of David. And it is true. But Matthew's point is that if he descends directly from the line of David, he would be um, disqualified as Israel's king. And that's what Matthew wants to show us, and you'll see that in a moment. Luke, on the other hand, wants to reveal to us from whom the Messiah descends. So we might say he provides for us the real line of the Messiah, or his biological line. So Matthew, as I just said, demonstrates that if Yeshua was the biological descendant of David, he cannot be the king of Israel. And so his apologetic, apologetic, question on the floor? A direct descendant of David through Joseph. But the key is David. Because it, we, we, it even precede, the issue precedes Joseph. I guess you could say both and, but he's focusing, of course, on, on David as the premier king. And, we, and, and we'll see some of those things. But, um, so Matthew demonstrates, if Yeshua was the biological descendant of David, he cannot be, be qualified as Israel's king. And we'll see why uh, in a moment. But... How does one become king in Israel? Uh, neither could he be king solely by means of adoption as Joseph's son. Although oftentimes we've heard that. And he is. And that's something that, you know, needs to, at least I like to champion. Because as a father of an adopted son, it's always neat to see adoptions in Scripture. And Yeshua is an adopted son of Joseph. So I always, you know, when my son was growing up and we talk about his adoption, we say, you know, just like Yeshua, you were adopted into our family. He was adopted into Joseph and Mary's family. So it's just kind of a neat thing. And then the whole imagery of adoption, we all are adopted as sons of God. We've been, uh, we are adopted children of God. So that's another kind of neat thing. God adopts us into his household. So those are some things that, you know, personal to me. But here's the issue about Matthew's genealogy with respect to the Davidic dynasty. First of all, he plays on the number 14. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, all the generations from Abraham unto David are 14, from David to the carrying away to Babylon are 14, and from the carrying away to Babylon or the exile into Babylon uh, around 600, 597, 586 years before the time of Yeshua, um, unto Messiah of 14 generations. Now, in reality, there's not 14, 14, and 14, right? Because if you go, if you count, even if you count it, and you count from Abraham to David, then you count David, you'd have to count David again, right? Unto the exile. So actually, you got 14, 13, and 13. 
right, technically. So, but he tells us, no, 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 it's 14 and 14, and he repeats some of those names. Why? Because he wants 14. Why does he want the number 14? Because in Hebrew, when you have David's name, it's made up of three letters. Dalid, Vav, Dalid. And in Hebrew, their numerical system is also their alphabet. So if you add up those numbers, the letter Dal, it's number four. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid is four. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid is four. And then the Vav, the David, the Vav. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid, Hey, Vav, six. And then another Dalid. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid. So four, six, and four is 14. So it's as if Matthew wants to reaffirm, re-emphasize that what I'm doing is showing the Davidic connection between the Messiah and his origins and his genealogy. So 14, 14, 14, why? Not because I'm going to give you 14, 14, and 14, but because David's name is numerically equivalent to the number 14, and that helps to reinforce my point. But he does it another way. If you look at verse 1 of Matthew 1, he says, The book of the genealogy of Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now it's very interesting, isn't it, that he places David above Abraham, because Abraham comes first. You know, normally you would think he would say the son of Abraham and the son of David. But he says the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Because David is what he wants you to be thinking about. And this is Matthew's gospel. This is his point. Yeshua is the Messiah, the king, son of David, that's what king means, of Israel. So all these things are emphasizing Yeshua as king. In Yeshua's, or Joseph's genealogy, we also have four women that are mentioned. This is also very unique because in Jewish genealogies and in genealogies in Hebrew scriptures, you never read of women in the genealogies. So when you have the genealogy of Abraham, it does not include Sarah, as wonderful and as prominent and as important as she is. When you read the genealogy of Isaac, it doesn't include Rebekah. When you read the genealogy of Jacob, it doesn't include Rachel or Leah. There are no women in any genealogy in all of the Hebrew scriptures. And even in the book of Ruth, which gives us uh, who is the main character, we get the genealogy of Boaz. And Boaz to Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David. We're back to uh, our king issue again. But Joseph, uh, or Matthew, departs from this uh, tradition and he alters it. And he provides for us with the genealogy of the Messiah for women. So who are they? The first woman is Tamar. And Tamar was a Canaanite. And you remember that she had, uh, uh, what would you say, um, posed as a prostitute in order to get Judah to fulfill his responsibility to her. Rahab, of course, was an Amorite. Another name sometimes in Hebrew scriptures for a Canaanite. But she resided in the city of Jericho. And as a profession, she was a prostitute. And Ruth was a Moabitess. Nothing we can construe about her that would be considered uh, immoral. Although there are some scholars that suggest that when the text speaks about her lying with Boaz, that perhaps some of the expressions there may suggest that, but we can't determine that with certainty. 
So we'll give her a pass on that. We'll say Ruth is, you know, one about whom everything is good. Because she is a wonderful character in the book of Ruth. And Bathsheba, of course, was a Hittite, married to Uriah. And she did commit adultery with David. So with these three women, all four of them are Gentiles. And so that's unique. Not only is included in the genealogy of the Messiah women, but they're Gentile women. At least maybe they could have had Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. But no, they're Gentile women. Um, because the issue, I think, that the writers want to present is that the Messiah comes for both Jew and Gentile alike. Different reasons as such. I mean, he comes for Israel with respect to fulfilling his promises to her and to their uh, descendants, like Abraham and, and David. But um, his coming for Israel is not exclusively for Israel, and that God's purpose was in bringing redemption for all peoples of all the world. When we get to Luke's presentation, he's going to be very much concerned to emphasize the Gentile connection of Messiah's coming. But within a very Jewish oriented 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 presentation. So uh, now, while all these women uh, are Gentiles, and three of them have sort of a uh, sordid uh, past, in the case of um, Ruth, who was a Moabitess, the Moabites were descendants of a sordid past, right? Because the Moabites and the Ammonites come into existence through the incestuous relationship of Lot and, her, and her, his daughters. So you remember after the fall of Sodom, his daughters say, we're not going to have any men, so they get their father drunk. They have sexual relations with him, and Ammon or, uh, and is, is born, and Moab is born. And the Ammonites and the Moabites uh, come from that source. So while there's nothing wrong with Ruth, certainly the origin of the Moabites uh, come out of a, uh, a negative past. So all of the women are uh, non-Jews, they're all Gentiles. And I think this is true, though the Messiah came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Gentiles will benefit from his, his coming. And so Messiah came, and that uh, is reflected right here just in the genealogy. It's kind of interesting to think about this, that when we come to genealogies, those are things, boy, we go pass over real quick, you know. But, and we do that perhaps with uh, Messiah's genealogy too. But when you take some time to look into it, uh, you find that there's some kind of neat things that, that you can find. So Tamar was guilty of incest. Rahab was guilty of prostitution. Bathsheba, guilty of adultery. Ruth, not guilty of sexual sin perhaps, but she was the product of it, as the Moabites and the Ammonites were the offspring of the relationship of Lot and his daughters. So why do we need Matthew's geneal genealogical accounts, since Yeshua was not the son of Joseph, uh, biologically? It's to demonstrate that if he was we'd have a problem. And here's how he does this. First of all, in verse 1, we find that Yeshua is the son of David, the son of Abraham. At least by, uh, well, we'll see in Luke's Gospel that is true, but um, not through that royal connection. In Matthew's genealogy, if you look at verse 6, you'll find that David beget Solomon. That is, David gives birth, um, is, is the father of Solomon. 
Now, just by way of comparison, if you look over at Luke's account in chapter, uh, what is that? Chapter three, verse thirty-one. Notice it says, "The son of Eliakim, the son of Mileah, the son of Menah, the son of Mataha, and the son of Nathan, who was the son of David." So you see that Mary's genealogy, though she was a son of David, not through Solomon, but through another son of David, Nathan. So in effect, Mary's genealogy or her, or her ancestry is not through the royal line of the kings, but through another line, but also a descendant of David. Does that make sense? The royal line goes through Solomon. So Matthew records Joseph's a descendant of Solomon and through the royal line, but not Mary, just by way of comparison. So in verse 6, but then if you look at verse 11, you find this king in which we read of Josiah begat Jeconiah. Now if you have your Bibles and uh, would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 22. And we want to look at verse 22. I mean verse 24. And just notice I put this up here that when we get to verse 16, we find that Joseph is a direct descendant of David. uh, Or... He's a direct descendant of David. I don't know why I have that through. And if you look at verse 16, speaking of Yeshua, it says that he, um, that Joseph, the husband of Miriam, of whom was born Yeshua. What's really interesting here is that the of whom is feminine and not masculine. So Matthew is referring to Miriam, not Joseph, when he says the husband of Miriam of her was born Yeshua. So he's very specific, very clear that Joseph is very clear to show that Yeshua's birth was a supernatural, uh, or at least in that statement is consistent with his other statements showing that Yeshua's birth was a supernatural working of the Spirit of God in that Messiah would be conceived um, supernaturally in Mary as the virgin and as a virgin and then give birth uh, to, to the Messiah. So in, Je- in uh, Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 24 this is what the Lord says As I live, declares the Lord even though Coniah Coniah is another name for Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. This is not a good thing for God to say about you, right? Even though you are royalty and you are the king, I'm just going to take you away. And, uh, you know, and no longer will you be as king. But he goes further than that. He says in verse 25, I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, even into the hand of those whom you dread, even unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. 
But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered, broken, destroyed jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling over Judah. What an incredible prophecy Jeremiah gives here. What he is saying is that with regard to Jeconiah, none of his descendants would sit on the throne of David. So now God has established a problem for himself. The problem is this. He promised David that he would have a descendant to sit on his throne forever and ever. But yet to one of his descendants he promised none of your descendants will sit on the throne of David ever. So how does God resolve the promise to David that he would have a son and his judgment upon Jeconiah that a son of of his would not sit on the throne. That is why there is a virgin conception. Because no one who would be a direct descendant of David biologically can sit on the throne of David because at this point in Israel's history that option was lopped off by an act of God's judgment. So any descendant from the royal line will not sit on David's throne. So if Yeshua is a descendant of that royal line, he can't sit on the throne. And thus, so how does God do this? Well, that's what the virgin conception, um, the birth was a normal birth, right? We call it a virgin birth, I suppose. But the real miracle is that she conceived as a virgin. And in her that conception, the Messiah was born, and thus a son of David can sit on a throne and yet the judgment on Jeconiah and his descendants can also be fulfilled at the same time. So the virgin birth was not just, you know, God sort of wowing us. You know, look what I can do. It was a necessity determined by his promise and by his judgment uh, upon, the th- uh, upon Jeconiah. So now let's back off. We have that in our minds for a moment, but here in chapter 20, 22... Uh, There are two requirements for kingship. We think that just a a Davidic descendant is enough. And it it is so that in the southern kingdom of Judah, you remember after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel goes into turmoil. It goes into turmoil because for all of Solomon's wisdom, he had not prepared the people and the leadership well for this moment in their history. And so when his son Rehoboam takes the throne... Rehoboam inquires of his advisors. He inquires first of his older, more mature advisors. And he says to them, do you think we should maintain the tax levels at the rate in which they are now impacting the people, or should we reduce them? And his elders say, you need to reduce the taxes. Why? Because under Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel exploded. 
it expanded in great numbers. And so Solomon was building his army. He was building his uh, chariots. He was building his fortresses. He was building an infrastructure of road systems from north to south. He was also building the temple. And he was building his palace. And so who was going to pay for all this stuff? And the people paid for it. But most of that investment was going in the south, in Jerusalem. The people all the way in the north, in the area of what we would call later in the first century, Galilee, were far removed from the benefits of all those monies that were being received. And to some degree, they were not happy about that. So now after Solomon's reign, and when uh, much money was being uh, taken from the people, and people were working hard, and now the army is being expanded through a draft, etc., the elders suggest to Rehoboam, look, you've got to lighten the load. And then when he inquires of his younger elders what he should do, they tell Rehoboam, don't back off, continue to just uh, demand more and more from them. After all, you're the king. You t get what you want. And as a result, the northern tribes in Israel, ten of them, revolted against Rehoboam and the southern kingdom of Judah. In the southern kingdom of Judah, they maintained Jerusalem as their capital. And they maintained the descendants of David as their kings. So there was only one dynasty in the south, the dynasty of David. In the north, they had to do something from keeping the people from going into Jerusalem. So they established two worship centers, one north in Dan and one south near Bethel, so that the people in the north did not have to travel into the south and into Jerusalem to worship God. They went to these two places where shrines were set up to worship. They also set up their capital in Samaria. But all the kings in the north are always considered wicked and did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons was they were never descendants of David. In fact, some nine different dynasties come to the fore in the northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, a king was determined by his descendancy, at least one of the ways, was through his descendancy through David. There were attempts to change this. In Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophecy about the virgin conception of the Messiah is given, it comes in the context in which there was an attempt to depose the king in Judah and to set up a new king. And the reason for that was because the king of Israel and the king of Syria, Aram in the ancient world, but the king of Syria feared the king of Assyria in the far north. And they wanted an alliance that could restrain the, the empire of Assyria from encroaching upon Israel. And they knew that Aram and Israel were not enough and powerful enough to withstand Assyria. So they wanted Judah to join with them. Of course, the king of Judah doesn't want to get involved because he's far removed from Assyria. He really doesn't have a lot to risk. So the king of Israel and the king of Aram thought they might attack the king of Judah, Ahaz, and depose him and set up a king that would join them in their alliance. So Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he tells him, do not fear these kings. They are just firebrands. They're just smoke 
smoke in a fire, but there's no real flame. And before long, they are going to be snuffed out. So you can ask, he says to Ahaz, any sign you want that this is true. Now we're not going to get all into Isaiah 7.14, but Ahaz responds that he will not test the Lord. Now that's a self-righteous statement Ahaz makes. It is true we should not put God to the test, but when a prophet of God comes to you and says, look, ask God for a sign, well that's when you can put him to the test. And not only that's not only when you can, that's when you should. When the Lord says, ask a sign. But Ahaz refuses in his self-righteousness because he was a wicked king. But the point of all of this is, we're not getting into the Isaiah 7.14 passage about the Alma, but we'll come to that as we get closer to Hanukkah. But, so come Sunday morning and you'll hear. But, um, but the point of that is that even though there was an attempt to remove a Davidic descendant from the kings in the south, it was doomed to fail. And that's what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 7. And in Isaiah chapter 8, the very next chapter, he says that any conspiracy will be doomed and will not, uh, be, they will not be able to follow through on it. So one way that an individual or one indicator that this individual was to be a king was he had to be a descendant of David. But the second thing was also important, and that was there had to be divine appointment. And that's why a prophet such as Nathan uh, anoints Solomon. And that's why in the north, the kings that do come to the fore, come to the fore because God tells a prophet to anoint a certain individual as king. That doesn't legitimize his kingship in the fuller sense of the word because he's not a descendant of David. But it is what God is initiating in his divine will and uh, purposes. So there are two things that were necessary to be a king in Israel. A descendant of David and divine appointment. So Coniah, or Jeconiah, as we just saw, is cursed by God, judged by God, so that none of his descendants could sit on the throne. And so Yeshua's coming to the throne is based on the fact Mary's related to David and he then is thus in that sense and because of Joseph's relation to Joseph can be rightly referred to as a son of David but the thing that really places him at the apex of Israel's king is the divine appointment and that's where the angels come and announce that the one that is uh, uh, conceived in Mary is one that is conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. So when one looks at Jeremiah 24, now to get back to this passage a little bit, the curse on Jeconiah, as the prophet states it, grows in intensity. So he says, first of all, that you'll go into captivity. You will never return to your homeland. You will die in captivity. And then, oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And it means to suggest that there is no turning back on this judgment that's going to befall the, uh, the royal line. And so in addition to the requirements of Davidic descent, the prophetic sanction or the divine appointment was a pre prerequisite and it is presented. To be king over Israel then, one must not be a descendant in the line of Jeconiah. And Matthew addresses the curse problem and therefore he will refer to the virgin conception and speak of Messiah's birth
in the context of Mary's delivering of this child and being conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you get to Luke's genealogy, right next to this one, the cons- he's cons- he is not concerned with it- this issue, per se, so he doesn't address the virgin birth until chapter 3. And uh, so we're just looking at the, um, the genealogy alongside. Matthew is concerned with Messiah's kingship. He traces the genealogy to David. Luke wants to demonstrate Messiah is the son of man. That's his, as we saw two weeks ago, that's sort of the title that, uh, pre, pre, uh, that dominates the, um, the gospel of Luke for, with respect to Yeshua because he's going to emphasize the humanity of the Messiah and thus his genealogy, if you look at verse 38, is traced all the way back to Adam. So the two genealogies go in opposite directions, right? One starts with uh, Abraham and goes forward to Messiah. The other starts with the Messiah and goes backwards uh, toward to Adam. So Luke follows Jewish precedent by not skipping any names. And this is interesting, Matthew does. Even though he's writing for Jews, he skips names. And he also includes women. And he also includes Gentile women. But Matthew's genealogy, or Luke's genealogy, follows normal Jewish uh, precedent, and uh, he skipped, he doesn't skip any names, and he doesn't include any women. Now, if you did want to include women, you would substitute the husband's name for the woman. And so, if you look at verse 24, uh, Luke does that. He says, "Being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Haley." So he throws in Joseph, but what he really is talking about is Mary, right? Or Miriam. Now, how do you know it's the woman's line and not the husband's line? Well, what happens in Greek is that you use the definite article, ha, it's like the, the omicron with a, uh, um, an accent mark over it, but you use the definite article. And the definite article appears in all of these verses with the exception of verse 24 where Joseph's name is presented because Joseph is not in this genealogy. He's named in place of Miriam, which is the typical way that you find uh, women made reference to in genealogies. Now, in the back of the uh, Harmony, if you look on page 259 through 262... A.T. Robertson provides a lot of detail, if you're interested in exploring it, uh, in this section. I just want to draw your attention on page 261, but it's, I think it's note 5 that he, that he calls it on page uh, 259. Is that not right? Um, yeah, he says the two genealogies of Messiah, number 5. But if you turn to page 261... Oftentimes, people have questions about this phrase, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And he has a great explanation and help in this. If you look at uh, page 261, and you're looking at uh, parentheses number two, and it says, the use of Joseph without the article, while it is used with every other name in the list. So he says, the absence of the article puts the name outside of the genealogical series, properly so-called. This would seem to indicate that Joseph belonged to the parentheses, as was supposed. It would mean then, being the son of Heli, but as was supposed of Joseph. Or, that's how people thought of Yeshua. 
the son of Joseph, right? And aren't these his kids? And isn't Joseph his father? You know, that that's what he was thought of during his time as, uh, in, on earth, fulfilling his ministry and in his incarnation when he became a man. He was seen by everyone as, this is the son of Joseph. And that's what that phrase, as it was supposed, is meant uh, to convey. The fact that there's no genealogy, uh, no definite article, means to suggest that Joseph is standing in representation of another. And the other that he is representing is none other than the mother of the Messiah, who is uh, Mary. But you read that through and you'll see that. In Talmudic literature, it is said that Miriam is always referred to as the daughter of Haley. And in these passages, husbands are named as substitutes for the wife. So there's precedent even in Hebrew scriptures for this to be found. Miriam, according to verse 31, was from the house of David, but of Nathan and not Solomon. So he, through Mary, is a descendant of David, but apart from Jeconiah. And thus that curse is in play, although it doesn't affect the Messiah of Israel. So why did Yeshua have the right to the Davidic throne? Because he had divine appointment. And when we get to paragraph 5, where the angels come and make the birth announcement, there is the divine appointment that he receives uh, as well. In Matthew chapter 1, just to go back... Uh, quickly, we remember we read that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by making reference to David and Abraham, we are introduced or reminded, I guess we should say, reminded of the covenants God has made with Israel. The Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there are five major covenants that God makes with Israel. And these are two of them. The Davidic covenant made to David that he would have a son to sit on the throne. The Abrahamic covenant, which promises Israel three things. It promises Israel a land. It promises Israel a descendant. And it promises Israel blessing. And that's why I said before, the Abrahamic covenant is to be seen as sort of like an umbrella covenant of promise. A covenant is another way of saying God's promise. But it is stronger than that. It's more like saying God's contractual agreement with Israel. And so if you think of the Abrahamic covenant, that's the primary covenant. And it's sort of like an overarching covenant or like an umbrella over all the promises God makes to Israel. And there are three promises that are included in the Abrahamic. The promise of a land. Leave the land that you know of Chaldea and go to a land I will show you. And then he tells them to walk wherever he walks. This land I'm giving to you. And later he gives us the boundaries, the Euphrates River in the north, the Jordan in the east, the Wadi El Arish or the Wadi um, in the, the river of Egypt is referred to in the south, and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. That's the promised land that the Lord is giving to Abraham. And it becomes one of the pivotal themes of the Hebrew Scriptures. The promise of land, real estate, where Israel, the people God has chosen, will reside. Another facet of the Abrahamic covenant promise is that of a descendant. He says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. A descendant will come from Abraham, which will bring God's blessings to all the families of the earth. Not just his immediate descendants, but all the families of the earth that will place their faith and trust in the God of Abraham, later named Isaac and Jacob. 
And then the third facet of the Abrahamic covenant is the promise of blessing. The Lord says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And he goes on to reiterate the great blessings that the people that he has chosen, the people of Israel, will be to the world. Now each one of those facets, each one of those blessings of the Abrahamic covenant become individual covenants that God will later make with Israel. And that is a way of reinforcing the certainty of the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? So he takes the promise to Abraham of land and he makes a separate covenant promising Israel land. And that is found in like Deuteronomy chapters 30 to 32. And we refer to it as the land covenant. The land contract. And then the promise that God made to Abraham of a descendant of a seed or a descendant later he meets with that descendant of Abraham David and he makes what is referred to as the Davidic covenant we're going to look more at that in a moment but essentially it means David is promised a dynasty forever and a throne forever and a kingdom forever so the promise of a descendant to Abraham is sort of crystallized and reinforced and reaffirmed and solidified in the promise to David. And then the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, land, descendant, blessing, is further crystallized and solidified and made certain in what's referred to as the new covenant. And so in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says at that time the Lord is going to write His law in the hearts of His people. And a new covenant is going to be made with the house of Israel and the people of Judah. And so that new covenant is based on what God promised to Abraham. That's why the Abrahamic covenant is the key to all the covenants God makes with Israel. That's four of the five. All four of those are unconditional covenants. That is to say, Israel does not have to do anything in order to receive these promises. They are unconditionally made. Now it's true Abraham had to leave Ur the Chaldeans and go to the land. But once he does that, all of these things are his and his descendants and his people. And one of the ways that God reinforces that truth is in Genesis 15. Because in Genesis chapter 15, God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham to take an animal and to slay it and to divide its members in half. And to line them up. Because in the ancient world, the way you signed on the dotted line was by sacrificing an animal. And in the sight of elders, in the sight of other representatives, when you made that sacrifice, it was like you signed your name on the dotted line and thus you are responsible to fulfill your contractual agreement. Now in this case, the sacrifice is made, the, animals are, the parts of the animal are separated, and they are laid out in a row for the two parts, the two uh, members of the covenantal agreement are to walk through together. They recite the covenant to each other and thus they are bound by the promises they make, legally. But in this instance, while the animal parts are laid out, then what happens is... The bowl. Then what happened is... Abraham is waiting all day for God to appear. Because that's who he's making the covenant with. 
So birds of prey begin to f- come onto the animals, right? So he takes his staff and he's, he's working hard keeping the birds from eating the parts of the animal. And then he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, the text tells us, God in a pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory, God in this visible manifestation of his presence, now localized, moves through the parts of the animal without Abraham accompanying him. And in doing that, he is saying, I bind myself to these promises, and Abraham, you are just receiving the benefits of those promises. It's another way of illustrating the grace of God. God, in His grace, says, I'm giving this to you. And thus the covenants just mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant with its three elements, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are all unconditional. It is also true that Israel, let's take the land for example, though Israel is the rightful owner of the land of Israel, it does not guarantee they will enjoy that land because to enjoy what is theirs, they must obey God. If they don't obey Him, he says, he will cast them off the land and thus make them exiles from the land. Exile to Israel was an act of God's judgment for their disobedience. Restoration to the land was an act of God's grace in fulfilling His promises to them. And that's why when you read of promises regarding the return of the Messiah, they are always connected to the return of the people to the land. And when the Lord gathers, regathers the people from the four corners of the earth, and Yeshua says that, Matthew chapter 25, where he says he will send his angels out to the four corners of the earth and they will gather his elect. His elect means his chosen ones. Same word, means chosen ones. And his chosen ones are Israel. That he will regather to the land. And when they're regathered to the land, sometime thereafter, he will return. But the point is that it is a blessing to be in the land. It is a judgment when you are exiled from the land. And so the Davidic covenant, as indicated by Yeshua's connection to David and Abraham, what Matthew is doing is he's showing these Jewish connections to the coming of the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And he is that ultimate promised descendant of David. He is the means to that great promise of blessing. He is the means by which Israel will ultimately be regathered into their land. And he's connecting the coming of Messiah with the promises of God to his people Israel. So Messiah's coming was for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but Gentiles will benefit from his coming. And that's a way of illustrating it through the connections with these covenants. We're going to say more about these covenants because they come up over and over again during these early narratives. Now, before I just go on, well, let me conclude this. When we look at uh, Luke's genealogy, in addition to what we see in Matthew's genealogy, we find that Yeshua is the son of David, Matthew 1.1. He's the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. He is the son of man, Luke 2. 338, son of Adam, and he is the son of God, verse chapter 3, verse 38. So these four images, four pictures, four, um, might say, revelations of his character are revealed in these 
genealogy. As the son of David, he is a king. As the son of Abraham, he is a Jew. Now, this is very critical. You know, we sort of just take it for granted because you and I have walked with the Lord and read His Bible. But that's very critical. And oftentimes, when sharing my faith with individuals, uh, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, but particularly with Jewish people, you know, the issue is this. If Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah, then we as Jews ought to believe in Him. If He's the Jewish Messiah, we ought to believe in Him. If he is not the Jewish Messiah, then no one ought to believe in him. Because then he's not any Messiah. Because the Messiah of Israel must be a son of Abraham. So everything sort of revolves around who is Yeshua. Is he the promised Messiah of Israel? If he is, then we as Jews ought to believe in him. And that's why those that do trust in him, Paul tells us, are referred to as the faithful remnant. And if he is the Jewish Messiah, well then, not only ought we to believe in him, but we should, but all peoples ought to believe in him because that means he's the ultimate and the only Savior uh, that there is. As the Son of Man, he came into this world and took upon himself humanity. And so you ask, how does he do that? Well, that's the marvelous thing. That's the marvelous thing about being omnipotent. So when you're omnipotent, you can do anything. You know, well, not anything. You can't do anything contrary to your nature. But you can do things that cause other people to scratch their heads. How do you do that? You know, that's the marvels of omnipotence. But, so how does he do that? Well, we know it's through the virgin conception. But what we're really asking is, how does the Holy Spirit impregnate Mary to bear the Messiah? And of course we say, I don't know. But that's what omnipotence can do. And that's what he's illustrating for us. So the summary in this whole thing then is, Yeshua is the Messiah, the Jewish God-man-king. That is such a neat thing just to sit on and think about from a theological perspective. What does it mean to be God? What does it mean to be the God-man? And just to um, slide off into some theology, it's very important that we don't think of him as the man-God. And that we don't take the dash out of it. He's not the God-man. You know? He is God because the Word was with God and the Word was God. Before he was man, he, or before he took on humanity, he existed as the second person of the triunity called the Word and was God. It's only later in time that he joins to his divine nature a human nature which now makes him uniquely the God-man. He's not a man that became God by somehow some kind of self-actualizational process in which he obeys God and thus, ding, he becomes God. He is God who does a miracle of miracles and takes on humanity to enter into our world to identify with all of our weaknesses and limitations and needs and suffers in our place as a substitute and provides us with, as a result, with eternal life. And that eternal life, he tells us, is something that begins the moment we receive Messiah into our lives. We receive life and life more or most abundantly. And so eternal life is not just the duration of life. It's also a quality of life. 
It's a life that is lived by means of the power of God's Spirit and reflects the character of God Himself. That's what God is doing in us. He is energizing us and implanting His Spirit within us that we would live a life that is godly and God-produced. And that is what eternal life is. It lasts for all of eternity, but it begins now. And thus, um, it is available to each and every one of us. Now, with that, what time is it? Oh, this is a great place to stop. Although, if we go at this juncture, we'll be here like 25 years. But that's okay. We have all of eternity. Okay? Well, let's pray. And uh, I'm sorry I took this long on this section. But we'll pray. And we'll try to speed it up over time. But let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this marvelous truth. And these marvelous truths that we have gleaned from your word this night. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in it. Help us, Lord, to live some of these truths out that are applicable to us. But may it cause us, like Miriam, to ponder your greatness, your goodness, and your miraculous working power. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, just before we dismiss, there are two announcements that we'd like to make.